When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network and a partner of ACCP Critical Care PRN. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. Wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. So this is part two of our heart failure series. So reminder, go back and uh, listen to part one, not necessarily in order. You don't necessarily need to, um, but uh, both episodes are absolutely crucial to helping understanding and really ensure a transitions of care and best care from kind of beginning to end um, and everything in between. Now, before we get into a quick overview, right, this episode is um, getting released on the first day of uh, March Madness, right? The NCAA um, tournament bracket. And I bring this up because uh, the when in 2020, when the NCAA tournament was canceled, here, right here on this very podcast, we had the 2020 Critical Care Medication March Madness bracket. So four different bracketologists, uh, Brian Gilbert, recent, recent, um, appearance on the pod, uh, Matt Roberters, Josiah Smith, Melanie Smith as well. So a great time. Um, so much fun. So that's a, it's a few parts. So if you want to go back, it's, uh, not a whole lot has changed, I think from, from the power rankings and things like that. So, um, if you're, if you're looking for things to listen to, that's certainly one as well. Now, you're here today now, and we're talking all things heart failure again. Now, uh, the this episode focuses in more on the transitions of care and guideline-directed medical therapy, right? We're talking about this for the ICU and emergency medicine pharmacist and everybody, but really focusing here Um you know, talking about the differences between, you know, Arnie's and ACEs and ARBs, washout period, when do we need it? What's a, what's a cool trick to avoid that? Um, what do you think is the forgotten um, GDMT agent? Which beta blocker do we prefer? Um, is there one, right? SGLT2 inhibitors, why are they so important? How did we get to where we are? Um, and then, right, we've been talking HEF-REF all this time. Let's bring in the HEF-PEF, right, which is the uh, the... I think a lot of cardiologists' favorite um, topic because there's a lot of controversy, right? There's a lot of interpretation of the data. So uh, Kate does a great job of breaking all this stuff down. This is a a really, really great episode. Um, and we're in for a treat. So let's get going. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out Read for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools, and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com apps. Again, that is qxmd.com apps. 
the Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Now, coming back for part two of covering all things heart failure, Kate Cooley is still here. And a reminder, she is the clinical assistant professor at the Ernest Maria School of Pharmacy at Rutgers University. She's also the clinical cardiology pharmacist at St. Joseph's University Medical Center. You can find her on Twitter at Kate underscore Centra. And she has a fantastic website that all who are even remotely interested in cardiology or learning about it should go visit. It's cards.rxexplained.com. There's a few kind of statements on the on the website. Um, on the first episode, we kind of highlighted the first, if you go to the website, you see the first kind of um, sentence about to the point, boil down explanations of cardiology topics. But one of the things that I love about it that I saw is her mission is to make your life easier and maybe hate cards a little less, which I love that. As someone who loves cardiology, but you could see how intimidating it can be, this is the website for you. So, Kate, thank you so much for sticking around uh, for part two. Yeah, good to be back for some more fun today. So we're, we're in rare air here with a third appearance. So I thought we should, we'll, we'll try to play a game to let the the listeners know uh, a little bit more insight, a little bit more about Kate not talking about the heart. So um, I love a game, Two Truths and a Lie. So what do you think about playing that? You say, you say three things and I'll try to figure out if I can determine what is the lie in it. I love that. All right. Let me think. All right, so I'll, I'll give you three statements, and you have to pick the line. Perfect. That's how it works, right? All right. Yep. So I played saxophone in high school. Um, I was president of the crocheting club in high school. Or I haven't showered in 2023. Well... I have to say, it feels like a setup. That's why I'm laughing because I feel like I have to say I haven't showered in 2023 because uh, to let the listeners in, like we're on video. I see you. You don't look like you haven't showered in what appears to be seven months. So I'm going to say that that is the lie, but I already feel like I'm wrong for the record. Yeah, I love it. No, so this is my way I always mess with people. Um, even during residency interviews, I'm like that weird person that like my fun fact is I haven't showered in a couple of years. <laughs> the reason why I hope no one has paused this podcast and moved on because there is a reason. Um, and it's because I take a bubble bath every single night. So I have my awesome setup in my house. Thanks to my husband. He installed a TV in the room for me. I have my closet tub. I have a fireplace. Everyone who knows me knows that. You know, I, I live in there. I have my waterproof Kindle. I'm all set up. So on a scale from one to 10, when you're home from work, what is your average pruny scale of your hands? Uh, well, so I'm, I hate to brag, but I am kind of a professional bath taker. <laughs> so my hands actually usually do not get wet until I like wash my hair. 
So the whole soaking period, like, I'm very good. Like, I have years of experience. I've taken books in there. I used to study in there. Like, I don't get anything wet. I'm very, I'm very skilled. Um, so I don't get down to an art. You have it down to an art. I think I do. <laughs> yep, everyone, I always encourage everyone, my learners, everyone, find that thing that helps you relax at the end of the day, the thing that keeps you sane and happy and, and go for it. And for me, that just happens to be mine. Self-care is important. I completely agree. Um, now, let's kind of, let's let's transition back to the heart here. And for those, this episode, this part two of our of the heart failure episode. So uh, if you haven't, Definitely go back, listen to episode one, where we talk a little bit more about kind of the the nomenclature, the specifics, the definitions, and then getting into all things about acute decompensated heart failure. Now, what the focus of this episode is going to be on is looking at more of like transitions of care, more chronic medication management, and talking about that guideline-directed medical therapy, um, where... I think a lot of us in the critical care world are probably somewhat familiar. Like I know the SGLT2 inhibitors, that class is good, but I don't think I know all the things about it. So Kate is going to come here and she's going to educate all of us. Now, let's start with diuretics, right? When we're thinking about heart failure and the there's three oral agents that someone could get discharged on from a loop diuretic perspective, right? Furosemide, torsemide, and bumetanide. So is what should they actually be discharged on? Is there evidence to say one's greater than another? Is there a ceiling effect between these? Because obviously we know like torsamide and bumetanide are much more expensive than furosemide might be. So how how do we kind of delineate that? And when should we try to step in if we think someone's on a, a weird outpatient one? I always, you know, tell my learners that just like our DOAX, you know, not all loops are the same either. And there's differences between them. Um, so when you look at, you know, usage, I think it's to no one's surprised that furosemide is the most commonly used. So the latest number I found is 87% of patients are in furosemide. Wow. Um, I know, but I think that when we're looking at the differences, there's a couple of really important things to kind of keep in mind. Um, you know, bumetanide and torsemide have much better bioavailability in general compared to furosemide. Um, I don't like using the term on my soapbox that they are stronger, but they're more potent, right? So mm-hmm. um, with bumetanide being the most potent, um, but with this bioavailability, you know, I always, my fun thing I do, well, it's fun for me, not for them, is with my learners, I say, you know, you look up the bioavailability of furosemide, you torsemide, you bumetanide. And, you know, what you see is torsemide and bumetanide, <laughs> Um, they have a bioavailability of, you know, about 80%, um, whereas furosemide, it's anywhere from 10 to 90%. Um, so it's really a big difference there. And I think it's tricky um, because what happens oftentimes with furosemide is, you know, or in general, patients get volume overloaded, right? And what happens is that their gut, their intestines also get you know, edema, volume overloaded. So we have a decrease in absorption. And, you know, if you can't catch it in time, it's kind of like this like vicious cycle. You need to get more volume off, but now your bioavailability is down. So, you know, I think furosemide is a great agent, especially first line due to cough. But, you know, if your patient is constantly coming in with volume overload despite oral diuretics and they're on furosemide, you know, I would consider 
you know, switching them to something like bumetanide or torsamide. Um, also food, right? So, you know, torsamide is the only um, diuretic that is not affected by food, whether you take it with food or not. Um, and comparing these agents and looking at the data, you know, there was actually this recent trial, Transform HF, it was published in JAMA, and they looked at torsamide versus verosamide. And I think everyone was excited when this was published, but they found no difference in the primary endpoint. Um, I do want to point out, though, that the outcome that they looked at was interesting, um, and they looked at decreased mortality. Um, and, you know, for, for those of you who remember, we don't have a lot of good evidence in general that diuretics, you know, decrease mortality in these patients. So um, there was one study that I know of, Optimized HF, that found reduced 30-day all-cause mortality and hospitalization with these, but, you know, non-randomized trial there. Um, you know, but there have been other studies as well that showed benefit with torsamide versus furosemide. So there was a TORC trial, which was post-marketing. Um, they found that compared to other loops, torsamide had decreased mortality, improved heart failure class. Small studies that, you know, show that it had less fatigue, less hospitalization. Um, but, you know, the data is very mixed. And, and, you know, on the larger picture, we don't really associate these different agents with um, decreased mortality. Um, while we're talking about diuretics, I just want to plug in. I am like always such a nerd when it comes to like mechanical circulatory support and all these devices we can use. So, you know, just, just a fun fact for our learners, there is something called cardio mems. Um, what, is, what it is, it's a really small device. It's like the size of a quarter. It's basically a sensor and it fits, you put it in the patient's pulmonary artery and it, and you, you put it there, like it stays in there. And so patients have this like special pillow that they lay on and it can capture their PA pressure at home. And then that information is sent, you know, virtually electronically over to the physician. So based on that, physicians can, you know, potentially remotely adjust diuretics or ask to see the patient sooner. Um, so, you know, they have one year post-approval data in 2020 that you know, showed potentially lower rates of hospitalization and all these things. Um, definitely not standard of care, um, but I, I definitely think it's just like cool to learn about and know that maybe in some patients in rural areas that are having issues seeking access to care, just knowing that, you know, these things exist. And I, I think it's always so interesting to see where cardiology is going and, and how technology is kind of incorporating into these things. Well, and everything is moving towards right patient-specific treatments and goals, and so it's it's awesome that the the device world is keeping up with that, right? Because this is going to give real-time data, and how more patient-specific can you get when you literally have something implanted in your in your heart? <laughs> um, yeah, literally. You did a really good job and, and also like you highlighted um, our adjunctive therapy and talking about whether it's giving IV diarrheal, PO metolazone, PO. Uh, hydrochlorothiazide. Like, do we have a preferred adjunct agent if they if patients need that for their diuretic resistance or what have you? Is there a preferred adjunct in the outpatient setting, keeping in mind like availability and cost for us who may be less familiar of it, kind of in the exclusively inpatient ICU world? Yeah. So, like you said, we, if we add an adjunct, it will typically be a thing like a diet uh, thiazide diuretic. I'll be honest, most frequently we really see hydrochlorothiazide, at least that's what I see as our, our big hitter. Um, it is cheap, it's fairly effective. You know, I looked up the price, 
um, at least from what I saw online, about $11 a month. Um, you know, we also have our other big hitters, like you're mentioning, like metolazone and things like that. Um, as far as the data, there have been a few trials that compared, you know, like metolazone, chlorthalidone. We don't really see a benefit of one versus another. Um, and I don't use a ton of chlorthalidone, to be honest. Um, so I looked up the price on that. And from what I saw online, it's about $114. So again, you know, much different. And I think it all depends on your patient's insurance. And, you know, the most important thing, and it's like one of my soapboxes, is whatever meds we give them, they have to be able to take and get. So Preach. Uh, always on the it, it makes no sense. It makes no sense if you're giving them these, the number one guideline recommended, if you know the moment they leave, they're going to stop getting it. It makes zero, yeah, it makes zero sense. <laughs> um, uh, oh, by the way, quick aside, chlorthalidone, I always think of that as like, if I see that on someone's med list, they've either been on it for 40 years or their doctor's 80. That's what I think of. Like, there's no it. in between. Um, but That's how I feel about the random like beta blockers or like the ACE inhibitors. <laughs> Um, so at what point should we be transitioning diuretics to PO in their hospitalization, right? Thinking about like, like we're trying to get thinking about IV to PO stuff, the same thing with diuretics. And I guess I'm asking because do you do it before they leave to make sure the dose you put them on is okay? Or is it one of those where you do the conversions from IV, you switch it the day of things are good to go. What, what should we kind of be doing in that sense? I think it's, a little frustrating that some of the data is mixed on this. There are some trials that suggest transitioning anywhere from one to two days prior to discharge decreases readmission rate. Um, but then some trials don't show that. Um, again, warning, what I say is biased in my opinion, but I'd rather have a patient that, you know, um, is stable on a dose and, you know, hopefully anything I can do to decrease readmission rate um, because, you know, that's a ton of time and everything out of a patient's life. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So now kind of transitioning into, I think what I would broadly call this category is HEFREF guideline directed medical therapy for the critical care IED pharmacist. So what are the four classes and give us all the impressive stats of why this is so important. Why, um, even though it's probably less glamorous than IV vasoactives or continuous infusions, why are us getting these meds and fighting these battles of getting them started or not DC'd? Why, why is this so important? Yeah, this is like my biggest soapbox. And I think a lot of people passionate about heart failure feel the same way. So when we're talking about HEFRAF, like you said, you know, we have our ACE ARPS ARNI, we have our MRAs, our beta blockers, and now the SGLT2 inhibitors for most patients. Um, and then hydral nitrate, depending on your patient. Um, I think I was, I think it's awesome. I was so excited when the guidelines came out. I think that the 2022 guidelines just like lay it down really, really nicely 
that the best treatment in these patients is prevention. And, you know, the guidelines, right from the guidelines, they say the use of all four drug classes have been estimated to reduce all-cause mortality by 73% versus no treatment. Say that again. Um, Say that again. 73% yeah, is crazy. So 73%. Yeah. And not only that, but like these number needed to treat is so crazy as well. It's, it's number needed to treat to pre- prevent all-cause mortality. Staggering. So, for example, MRAs, nine patients over 24 months. Beta blockers, 28 patients over 12 months. And like, think about how many patients have heart failure. We are literally saving lives and preventing hospitalizations in these patients. Um, with that being said, though, the guidelines also include these great stats here. So they said nearly half, so 46% of patients with systolic heart failure have no changes to GDMT in 12 months after hospitalization, despite being on suboptimal doses. From claims data, they saw that 42% are on no GDMT within 30 days after hospitalization. 45% are either on nothing or just one agent after one year. And there was this trial CHAMP HF. They found that initiation or increase in doses only occurs in less than 10% at one year. And my favorite quote from the guidelines, which like, it's really my soapbox, but even the guidelines say it cannot be assumed that oral GDMT will be initiated or optimized after hospitalization for HEFRA, which means get these things on board inpatient. You know, don't be like, oh, they'll just change it when they go outpatient. This, the guidelines just laid it down so nicely. I can't think of any guideline that literally lays it out like, hey, do your job, right? If we're doing I mottos, know. that's what they're, they're, they're like yelling at us. And I loved it. They say that. Because that's probably what a lot of us think, right? So many of us, especially the right, we're so worried about saving this patient in front of us, making sure they can they can right there get off the non invasive ventilation because they're so fluid overloaded and things like that. That we all just assume that someone else is going to start it. Um, that's a really, I mean, number needed to treat of one and nine. Let me like lay that out for people, like like aspirin before an MI, right? You think of standard of care, right? It's like the biggest thing you do. That's like one in forty two. So it's almost five times more impressive. I just have to like reiterate that of how important these things are to get started. Um, so really great facts. I knew you were going to, you were going to lay the heat there. So uh, great job now. Yeah. And just going to that, like I, once again, I love that the guidelines say this because you can literally quote the guidelines to the providers or whoever you're working with. It's not just some random article, right? It's like, this is guidelines. So you know, just know that that's in there and, and, you know, use it when you need it. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's always great when you can subtly reference the guidelines when people are thinking, this is your opinion or your thoughts. Like, well, no, this is the statement of the governing body and all the influential members in the heart failure world. Um, so I, let's go kind of go into some of these agents because I think a lot of us who have uh, learners or some of us who are even out in practice, a lot of us are probably either forgotten some of these things or we may learn a couple things. So let's kind of get into the broad category of like our RAS inhibitors, right? The ARNI uh, versus kind of the ACE inhibitors and ARBs. And um, why, what is the data shown and why is there such a massive push to going towards uh, secubitral valsartan or the ARNI treatment? 
talking about how they differ here. So our armies have this extra component. So, you know, in the case of the Cubitron Belfartin, right, it is the Cubitron. So we already knew that ACE inhibitors are, they're really great at blunting that, you know, maladaptive RAS system. So, you know, I always tell my learners, you know, when your your body wants to help you, but it makes things worse, right? Or like when your husband wants to kiss with you and he just like makes things messier and you're like, I got this, it's fine, right? Um, but really, you know, you have this ROS activation and, and these agents are helping to decrease preload and afterload and help that failing heart. But what neprilysin inhibitors do, so that additional kind of component, is they prevent the breakdown of BNP. Um, BNP, brain natriuretic peptide, I love fun facts, just so you know. They are named after the brain because they were originally discovered in guinea pig brains, but in humans, they're excreted by the heart as a response to ventricular stretch, so as we get volume overloaded. Um, so really, BNP causes that naturesis. It helps increase urine excretion, helps with that volume overload. I think something that is important to keep in mind is even though BNP is often used as a marker of volume overload and patients come in with these really high BNPs and we kind of see that as a bad sign, I think it's important to remember that BNP in and of itself is actually good because it's kind of your body's way to compensate. And unlike the RAS system, BNP is actually helping your situation. Um, a rare time where your body is actually being helpful there in heart failure. Um, and looking at ARNIs versus you know, ACEs and ARBs, the landmark trial looking at this uh, in systolic heart failure was the Paradigm HF trial. Um, it was a large trial, double-blind, randomized, all the things we love, and it was actually stopped early due to effect. So um, compared against the standard of care, which was an ACE inhibitor, and in the primary outcome of CV mortality or heart failure hospitalization, we saw a statistically significant benefit with the army with a number needed to treat of 21. And not only that, but when we looked at the composite endpoints and we looked at them all individually, because we know sometimes, you know, one could skew our results, yep. we actually see significance in each one of them. So mortality and heart failure hospitalization. Um, there was also this recent trial that, you know, compared different escalating doses of our ARNI, so lower doses versus higher doses. And I think it's it's interesting to note that they saw no differences in outcomes, um, even though we looked at surrogate outcomes. So you gave us the cell. By the way, ARNI is a great abbreviation. I'm going to start using that from now on. But how how do we transition, right? Patient comes in, Acer ARB, the awesome team identifies it. We're going to make the change. How do we do it? A couple of things, I think, to kind of keep in mind. So one thing is their labs in general. So once a patient is on ARNI, um, they're going to have increased BNP independently, right, of their volume status. So it's important to note that patients that are on ARNI, you know, you wouldn't use BNP to look at their volume status, but you can use NT Pro BNP because that will not be affected. However, you know, even though Secubitril Valsartan is great and it has good results in heart failure, unfortunately, you know, neprilysin, which we're inhibiting, normally is responsible for also breaking down things like bradykinin, which is our inflammatory kind of peptide. So unfortunately, right, ACE inhibitors have that same effect where the ACE enzyme breaks down that, you know, bradykinin normally. So 
So the issue is the combination of aces and uh, sorry, uh, aces and our armies. You would have a very very high risk of angioedema and things like that um, when taking them together or near each other because you would just have that market increase in bradykinin. So you have to do a washout period um, with this, and this is specifically with aces, right? Since ARBs do not affect um, really bradykinin levels. So if you're transitioning from an ACE to an ARNI, you need at least a 36-hour washout period. Um, you know as well as I, I, I got a phone call recently uh, while we were recording just now, and I, we had to pause because an order just came in, right, and patient was on an ACE inhibitor this morning, now switching to an ARNI. So we want to avoid that. Um, the other thing to keep in mind, right, is if you have the intent of eventually switching a patient to an ARNI, um, you know, especially patients with poor health literacy, things like this, just put them on an ARB already. So you're avoiding the side effect altogether because you can easily take your ARB dose and then your next dose can be your ARB. We don't see that interaction there. I mean, we're talking about soapboxes. I am such the, uh, the soapbox of why everyone is still on ACE inhibitors now that ARBs are like cheap generics. Don't even get me started. But is there really any role for... Aces or ARBs with these in, with the incredible benefits seeing of of the Arnies. So, in my opinion, there is definitely still a role, and I'm going to talk about why. So, this all goes back to the Paradigm trial, the HF trial that compared Arnies versus ACE inhibitors. Um, if you actually look at how the trial was done, you know, as many trials do, so you know, no shade, but they reasonably excluded patients that might be at risk of harm with these drugs. So. They already excluded patients with symptomatic hypotension, hyperkalemia, low GFR, and then this broad, quote unquote, those with unacceptable side effects. Um, and before they even collected the data, they had a run-in period. Um, so just for our learners, right, a run-in period is a period before a trial is actually started, before you start collecting data, where, you know, investigators will do something. So the run-in period for the Paradigm HF trial, it was single blind run-in, Every patient had to tolerate enalapril 10 milligrams twice daily for two weeks, followed by our ARNI doses starting at, you know, a, a, a low dose and then eventually switching to a high dose for four to six weeks. So, again, anyone with significant side effects were taken out of that trial. So, you know, my point is, by the time this trial starts, you kind of see a little bit of this cherry-picking effect of, like, the patients we're dealing with, you can argue they're very robust. They're less likely to experience things like hypotension because they already tolerated these drugs. And my whole point with this is, even with these patients, if you look at the adverse effects, you still saw significantly more hypotension, AKI, hyperkalemia with our ARNI. So, for example, symptomatic hypotension, even with these robust patients, was about 14% versus 9% with a number needed to harm of 21 so my point is, right, this drug is fantastic and it has great outcomes, but it's just something to keep in mind that, you know, a lot of patients just cannot tolerate being on it. Um, so for the patients that can't tolerate it, you know, I don't think ACEs or ARBs are going away anytime soon. I want a pearl. The number needed to treat and number needed to harm was the same. So that's something to tuck away. Um, that's a really good discussion of 
it is the drugs are awesome. Don't great. We just, we need to start them, but you know, there are patients that might not tolerate them. So if you see patients come in, not on that, um, right. There's probably a reason. And I'm guessing at this point, right. It, are there as many insurance issues? Like, is this now starting to be routinely covered in things? Hopefully. Um, you know, in my practice, I actually work with, uh, you know, charity care patients. So we don't deal with insurance as much, but you know, now that these drugs are FDA approved, I would expect that, you know, thankfully, especially in, you know, systolic heart failure, they hopefully should be covered. Now, kind of shifting gears here into our um, MRAs or spironolactone and implerinone. So when do we need to use this in HEFREF? And let's say everything else is equal, which agent do you prefer in the, in the head-to-head battle of these two? Definitely a big believer in MRAs. You know, we have the thesis trial, the RAILS trial, and systolic heart failure showing these really impressive decrease in mortality and hospitalization. Um, realistically, right, practically speaking, spironolactone is much cheaper. And it's, and it's overall, it is very well tolerated. Um, personally, I haven't seen a ton of what we worry about, which is gynecomastia um, in practice, but we do occasionally see it. Um, and if we do see it and the patient can afford a plerinone, then that's kind of when we are thinking about transitioning over. Um, one thing I want to mention about MREs, though, which I think might be a little bit of a misconception, even though we love to use them in resistant hypertension as an add-on treatment, in patients with systolic heart failure, we actually don't see that much blood pressure reduction with them. So, for example, in the RAILS trial, where we looked at spironolactone in these patients, there's actually no difference between groups in blood pressure receiving MREs or not. So, you know, I think it's very it's a very common and, and reasonable concern that I don't want to start this. My patient looks, their blood pressure is a little soft or whatever, but knowing that, Hey, like we actually don't see this and, and here are the landmark trials and they even report these things. Do you think that the, that that class, the MRAs, that they're the forgotten GDMT kind of piece in, in the puzzle? So personally, I I don't think so. Um, I do definitely think that ACEs are the beta blockers. I do think those are kind of everyone's like first thoughts. I totally might be biased and skewed because I've always worked in cardiology. So like, you know, we're always trying to start these drugs. So, you know, I do think it's very possible that in the non-cardiology world, world when we're seeing these patients, it very much could be ACEs beta blockers because I do think they are, you know, talked about more. So it's kind of a, a perfect transition. Why think of like the hydralazine and nitrate kind of combo? Why do we, th- well, we'll refer to them as an agent knowing that they're two technically, but why do we think this is the forgotten, why do we think this is the forgotten piece of the, of the GDMT puzzle? I definitely agree that, you know, they are really kind of forgotten. Um, and the reason why I think is because there's only really a certain class of patients that can benefit from these as far as mortality reduction, and those are our black patients. So um, I do think, though, you know, just for learners out there, that the way they discovered this was really cool. Um, back in the day, in the 80s, and believe it or not, in the 80s, we actually had no known treatments for systolic heart failure that had good data at all. So the first thing they ever tested were these agents. 
And in the VHAC trial, they looked at all these veterans and they were testing out, which was now the standard of care at that time, you know, is this effective in patients with systolic heart failure? And actually what they found was no statistically significant difference, you know, a slight trend towards improved survival, but not really much. I think what's really cool though is, you know, someone looked at this data and they noticed that black patients may benefit from it more. Um, but it really wasn't until 2004, so, you know, unfortunately, you know, 20 years or so later, that the VHEC trial now became the AHEC trial, and we studied it only in black patients, and we saw that survival benefit and mortality benefit in these patients. So, you know, I definitely think it's something that we still have to keep in mind because we do have robust evidence in that specific patient population that it decreases death. I mean, that's a, that's a perfect real world example of taking a secondary finding or a subgroup analysis, creating a new trial and truly seeing if that was due to chance or not. So that was a, a really cool highlight um, for those who may have been less familiar. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's also complicated because it's a, like these two are only available as like a brand name only two drug combo that can sometimes be hard to afford. So you're getting sometimes two extra agents to people. So I could see the logistics potentially creating problems. I'm not, I'm not um, saying they're right. I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to um, play both sides here. Um, Cause yeah, ultimately people should be on them if they, if they're indicated for it. Now moving into beta blockers. Um, we're focusing on on three, so carvedilol, metoprolol, bisoprolol. So everyone knows I love picking favorites. Um, so if you could pick a favorite, which of these agents would it be? I'm going to give the most hated answer that it's patient specific, but I'm going to talk about why. Um, so right, carvedilol, we have metoprolol, sulfonate, and we have bisoprolol. Um, I would argue really most commonly prescribed our biggest contenders just as far as what I've seen in practice is metoprolol, sustenate, or carvedilol. Um, there have been some head-to-head -head studies with mixed results, um, but some do find that, you know, there might be an additional benefit of carvedilol over metoprolol. Between the two, though, I think there's a couple of important factors to look at that are patient-specific. So one is adherence. So unfortunately, carvedilol is a BID drug. So patients have to take it twice daily, whereas metoprolol-sustinate is just daily. So, you know, you know, like I said before, at the end of the day, if my patient's not taking the drug, it's not going to work. So, you know, in patients with poor adherence, I probably opt for something like metoprolol. Um, you know, carvedilol is a nice option if adherence is not an issue. And let's say the patient is already maxed out on GDMT and maybe still a slightly hypertensive. Um, you know, since carvedilol is not cardioselective, we have a little bit of that alpha inhibition, which causes some blood pressure reduction. It's really interesting. So some data also supports carvedilol over metoprolol-sustinate in patients with drug-induced cardiomyopathy. Um, so in patients that use things like meth or cocaine, um, they get something that we call, if they're taking metoprolol, what we call unopposed alpha stimulation, right? Because those beta receptors are blocked, but not alpha. So if they're taking metoprolol and they use those drugs, they get these really, really high increases in afterload that can be very damaging, right, to the heart that's already weakened. Um, but again, I think, you know, if your patient is not going to, you know, take a twice daily drug, 
then, you know, any beta blocker is better than none. So do these still have the same benefit if we're not at their target doses? Like if, if we see someone come in on Coreg 3.125, is is any are they getting any positive benefit from that beta blocker? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And and whenever I'm teaching heart failure to learners, I always ask them like, why why do we have these target doses? And like, you know, they're like focusing really hard and thinking and they're like, oh, like blah blah blah. And I'm like, because that is what we have the data in, right? That is the average dose that these patients got in these trials where we know there's mortality benefit and hospitalization benefit. Um, you know, my opinion, and there's not a ton of data, but, you know, given such low number needed to treat and given such outstanding benefits, you know, I do personally believe that, you know, any is better than none. Um, there's not a ton of data, like I said, to my knowledge about, you know, comparing the different doses, um, with the exception, like I said, um, that recent ARNI trial that they looked at some surrogate markers, so, you know, not hard clinical outcomes, but they looked at things like, you know, LVEF and all these things, and they compared the different doses. And they did find that for the ARNIs, um, there was benefit, you know, amongst all doses, even the low dose. Um, so really, you know, I still believe that any is better than none. And like the guidelines say, we should be reaching for these target doses or, you know, as much as our patient can tolerate. So I think all of us have um, encountered this in practice at one point or another, but what is your reply when someone tries to hold or even will recommend against starting a beta blocker for, say, a new uh, HEFREF diagnosis and the patient has HEFREF and COPD? And we're not even saying an exacerbation. Let's just say they're, they're, getting, um, they're in the hospital just get tuned up optimize some of these things their copd is completely under control like what is your what's your argument to that colleague because i'm guessing you don't let that go <laughs> so listen i get it like in theory right like there is that interaction and all these different things um but when you look at the clinical evidence no evidence really supports you know withholding these agents and there's a lot of evidence supporting that you know, especially our cardio-selective beta blockers, they're safe and efficacious for these patients. Um, there's even statements, I believe, from the American Heart Association about this. So, you know, besides, you know, giving your recommendation, luckily you have plenty of, you know, uh, you know, big sources to kind of back up your claim that, you know, we should be starting these drugs in these patients, especially once again, going over that number needed to treat and that mortality benefit. Now let's switch gears here a little bit, talking about the SGLT2 inhibitors. And I want to ask a question because we're now using them in all patients with HEFREF, regardless of if they have diabetes or not. And I guess my question for you is like, how did we get here? Was this something that they, was this a huge finding in, in one of their initial studies? Or is this something where we kind of uh, found something and then we chased down the rabbit hole uh, to ultimately end up where we are in terms of SGLT2 inhibitors in heart failure in patients maybe with or without diabetes? We totally chased the rabbit. Like, I love telling this story to my learners. And, and again, like, I think it's so easy when you're a learner, you're like, oh, everyone just knows everything. We always knew what to do and <laughs> yes. how to study the drug, right? But we don't. And so, 
you know, the place of these drugs and heart failure is kind of very serendipitous, honestly. So, you know, we knew always that diabetes and cardiovascular disease are tied together. It all starts back in 2015. We have the EMPA-RED trial, um, and we looked at things in diabetics only. Um, we looked at NACE outcomes, so, you know, major adverse cardiovascular events in patients with type 2 diabetes with empaglyphosin. Um, and, you know, we looked at these secondary CV outcomes, and we saw really an unexpected unexpected 35% relative risk reduction in hospitalization um, for heart failure in patients with established ASCVD and type 2 diabetes. We saw the same results, really, with dapagliposin. Again, this is just in diabetes patients with a declared TIMI-58 trial. And everyone was like, what the heck, right? Like, this is awesome. Like, but again, you know, you can't just, like, take it and run. But this is very hypothesis-inducing. Um, there was post-talk analyses of these trials. And, you know, they looked at the effects for heart failure patients and whether baseline EF really modified that effect of, of treatment. And we saw a benefit in both HEF-REF and HEF-PEF. So, you know, recently now we have these large, big RCTs that looked at both HEF-REF and HEF-PEF. Um, you know, in HEF-REF, it was the Emperor reduced and DAPA-HF trials. And again, these were in patients with or without diabetes. And even in patients without diabetes, we did see beneficial outcomes for these patients. What are some of the the most common adverse effects that you can see uh, with these agents? And are there are there any are there any adverse effects that will make us much more nervous than others? With all these drugs, there is a concern for maybe euglycemic uh, acidosis. Um, all of them do carry a risk with, uh, of basically you know, increased urinary tract infections, things like that, which makes sense because they're increasing the amount of glucose in the urine. Um, I want to talk about, you know, a couple of things that I think people may be concerned about that are less known and kind of talk about whether the data supports it or not. Um, so, you know, hypoglycemia, I think, is a big one. You know, I think it's really easy to be like, okay, well, these, are, these were diabetes drugs, so now we're going to put them in patients that don't have diabetes. You know, do I have to worry about hypoglycemia? Um, you know, what if my patient has diabetes and they're already on all these drugs? Like, can I add it on safely? Um, and if you really look at those original trials with diabetes, we see that the rate of hypoglycemia, you know, only varied by 0.1%, you know, compared to placebo, even when we had dual therapy um, diabetic agents on board at baseline. Um, shout out to Embareg, that trial. They have a great, great chart describing all the baseline diabetic medications that patients were on and the risks associated with each. Um, you know, I would say I would use some loose caution in drugs that, you know, we already know cause hypoglycemia, like sulfonylureas or insulin. But, you know, really the data and, and even in practice, it's not really supported that we have that huge risk of hypoglycemia with these drugs. The other thing I think that everyone, you know, is kind of thinking about is these have a mild, you know, diuretic effect, like we talked about before with MPAG-HF. Um, so do we have to change diuretic doses when we're, you know, putting these drugs on, whether inpatient or outpatient? Um, and I think the data there is a little mixed. So I will say in the original trials with this, 
we do not see a huge difference between groups. So, for example, in the Emperor Reduced trial in HEFREF, you know, 15%-ish patients uh, required a change in diuretic dose with empagliflozin, but that was against 13% of patients with placebo. Um, I think, you know, the data may not necessarily require a change in diuretic dose, um, but I, I will say, um, just practically speaking, uh, in practice, sometimes we will lower it a little bit um, and have close follow-up with the patient. I think on the inpatient side, the good thing is that these diuretic effects do happen pretty quickly within the first, you know, day or two. So, you know, hopefully, like I said, you're switching to oral diuretics and you can really see how they're maintained. And then lastly, you know, hypotension is always a concern. When I'm thinking about my heart failure patients, I always look at renal function, and blood pressure almost as like currency like that I get to spend, right? Um, and sometimes our patients do have these softer blood pressures. I think it's very common, especially in systolic heart failure, right? Because these patients literally cannot generate these high systolic pressures. Um, so, you know, is there a concern with hypotension when these drugs are, are put on board? And I think really thankfully, it's very, very little and we don't really see them um, with our data. So. There was this trial, the Impulse trial, that, uh, you know, investigated starting empagliflozin in-house during acute decompensated heart failure. Um, and really, the change in systolic blood pressure we saw with empagliflozin was 0.1 millimeters of mercury um, versus one in the placebo group. So, placebo had more. Um, and then, you know, diastolic, again, we're talking about 0.3 versus 0.7. So, you know, the data supports that, you know, we really don't have to worry about hypotension as much with these agents. So we've been talking about HEFREF. So would you say that you are more passionate about HEFREF or HEFPEF? You can't make me pick. Um, <laughs> I think that I am more passionate about uh, the data behind HEFPEF because the data is kind of squirrely as we might get into um, so I do enjoy teaching HEFPEF to learners and kind of going through the literature with them, but I do not have a favorite. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So let's get into HEFPEF here. So is it an incorrect assumption that we should start most, if not all of the same medications that we are, like all the GDMTs that you just highlighted, those classes, are we doing the same thing? Are we making the same push for those HEFPEF patients? Yeah, so I think the answer with that is yes and no. It depends on the drug. So um, in general, with HEFPEF, you know, the data isn't as great and established as we see with systolic heart failure. Um, and it's not that we're not testing these drugs that we're using in, in HEFREF and HEFPEF. We are. We just, the outcomes are, you know, very unclear. So, you know, for example, we know in HEFREF, you know, beta blockers are a mainstay of care. Um, in HEFPEF, though, you know, 
beta blockers aren't actually great for these patients. There was actually a trial that came out really recently, very small, but it was an EP study. And they looked at patients with HESPEF and, and had a pacemaker in, and they found that increasing the basal rate of their heart, their heart rate, actually was beneficial for these patients. So, you know, I think we, we already kind of knew that, you know, beta blockers don't have, uh, you know, like mortality benefit in these patients. But now we're kind of seeing these trials suggesting that, you know, they potentially these patients need a higher resting rate there. Um, additionally, you know, even though when you're looking at the guidelines, ACEs and ARBs are a class two for HESPEF, um, even the guidelines say, this is a quote, clinical trials with RAS inhibition have not shown much benefit in patients with HESPEF. Um, so when we're looking at like the CHARM preserved trial with candesartan, you know, we actually didn't see statistically significant benefit in that primary outcome of CV death or heart failure hospitalization. Is the data as strong in this, like with these agents in the HEF? HEF population as because the HEF ref data is impressive, right? You talk to us about that, but it is the is the data as strong to get these agents started in this group? Yeah, so the data is very interesting. Like I kind of was alluding to. Yeah. So you know, going back in time, there, I remember when I was in school, you looked at the HEF PEF guidelines, and they were very underwhelming. And again, it's not that we hadn't tried finding agents that had great effects. It's just we didn't see a lot of benefit in, in a lot of different drugs. And so, you know, I remember for the longest time, it was like treat underlying causes, right? If they have diabetes, treat their diabetes. If they're hypertensive, their hypertension. Um, it's been a very exciting couple of years uh, for, pati or for patients and for, you know, cardiologists, cardiology people in the world of HESPEF. Um, and, you know, talking through that data, um, so if we're looking at the MRA data, because um, let me reorient you to the guidelines as of right now. So right now, the guidelines recommend SGLT2 inhibitors kind of above all other agents for HEF Okay. And then we have class 2B recommendations for spironolactone, our ARNIs, and our ACE and ARBs. So they're all kind of weighted equally in the guidelines. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the data though. Um, so, you know, like I alluded to before, even the guidelines say we don't have great data with ACEs and ARBs. The charm preserved trial didn't see that huge benefit. Then we come to the MRA data, um, which is pretty spicy if I do say so myself. So, you know, in HEF-REF, we had the RAILS trial and we found, you know, great evidence, mortality benefit, all those good things. So, you know, like I said, they also tested these agents in HEFPEF. So in our HEFPEF world, we have the 2014 trial, TopCat, love, again, such a cool name, but we looked at spironolactone in these HEFPEF patients. It was a huge trial, multi-center, international. Um, we had patients in North America and then over in Russia and Georgia. Everyone was, everyone was holding their breath for the results. And when the results came out, everyone was disappointed. Everyone drowned. <laughs> everyone had yeah, their breath know, and right? we drowned. <laughs> I know because yeah, what we saw was no statistically significant difference in our primary endpoint of CV death, hospitalization, or aborted cardiac arrest. Um, you know, looking at the separate endpoints, we did see some benefit with 
you know, heart failure hospitalization in and of itself with a number needed to treat of 45. So, you know, that's what we've had. However, this is where it gets a little crazy. So we had that trial. Everyone was a little sad. Maybe, you know, hospitalization benefits. You know, someone much smarter than me looked at the data, and they found that it differed extensively based on region. So there was a post-talk analysis looking at that TopCat trial. It was published a year later, and they broke up patients based on where they were at, either North America or Russia and Georgia. And the differences between these groups were staggering. Um, if you just looked at North America, you saw statistically significant end results in every single endpoint with p-values of, you know, less than 0.001 on every single uh, endpoint. And in Russia and Georgia, we saw no statistical significance in any endpoint. So someone was like, you know, what's happening here? And then two years after that, in 2017, another post-hoc analysis looked at the metabolites that were required to be collected in these patients during the original TOPCAT trial. And maybe not surprisingly, we found that Russia, Georgia, you know, they had, uh, you know, 10 times lower, you know, in, in basically patients did not have the metabolite of coronalactone, um, and they were 10 times more likely not to have a metabolite in Russia and Georgia. So basically, you know, what that's kind of hinting at is perhaps those patients were not taking that drug because they didn't have that metab metabolite in their body at the time. So what to do with this, right? Uh, I told you it was spicy. But um, right now, uh, the guidelines do kind of recommend MRAs, again, class 2B for hospitalization benefit. Personally, um, based on the data, I'm actually an MRA believer. Um, with this being said, there is a trial that's pending, uh, which might make me like totally wrong, but it's the SPIRIT HF trial. And we're actually going to redo this basically in half past patients and, you know, see if there's benefit. So everyone's holding their breath once again for that trial to come out. Um, but, you know, spironolactone, it's not an FDA indication, but, you know, it's an old drug and it's fairly cheap. Yeah, you weren't lying on the on the Scoville scale, right? Of the the pepper spiciness, I thought we were going to be at like the the Serrano pepper side, but I feel like we were up to like the habanero. So, are any of these agents even FDA approved, like to actually treat hefpef? Because okay, I mean, the the you you mentioned that the uh, the data is uh, spicy. Yeah. So you know, one thing I want to mention is. You know, just like about a year or so ago, we had our first ever FDA approved drug for HFPAC and the internet was going wild and it was our army. Um, one thing I want to mention though is, you know, when you look at the trial that approved um, ARNIES in HFPAC, it was the Paragon HF trial. We actually, they looked at hospitalization and death from CD causes. If you look at the data, they actually didn't reach statistical significance in that endpoint. And not only that, but if you looked at each individual endpoint, none of them reached statistical significance. So, you know, I love showing learners. There's a 2019 article right after the trial came out that says, Arnie flops, crucial heart fail trial, imperiling $5 billion sales goal. But if you, if you went two years later, you'll see this article based on the same trial that says, you know, Arnie wins first FDA nod in hard to treat type of heart failure. Um, 
And, you know, the reason, if you look into the data, why it was actually approved is one of the many subgroup analysis they conducted, they found benefit in patients that have an EF of less than or equal to 56%. Um, you know, and I'm sure we're all familiar with this, but have to be careful with subgroup analysis and what it means. Um, I always use the ISIS-2 trial with my learners, um, which found that, you know, in, in MI, patients that were Libra or Gemini actually didn't benefit from aspirin, right? It was kind of the most badass publication of all time, in my opinion. So, you know, on one hand, I think it's good that these patients have access to ARNIs. Um, on the other hand, you know, I encourage everyone to come up with their own, you know, interpretation of their trial and, and, and you know, how strong they feel like the data is. That first headline you read almost sounded like it could have been a headline on like the back of the New York Post after like a New York sports team lost or something, right? Trying to just get all the all the buzzwords, flopped, millions, all the I things. Know. <laughs> so um this was just a, a master class in reviewing our management of this right complex disease state, right? Where one size certainly doesn't fit all. So normally I say if you could pick three things to focus on, but I think here, what would you say out of, out of all of them, if, if someone's just listening to this piece here, what's the one takeaway that you want us to know as it relates to helping treat our patients with heart failure? Yeah, so I, I think the biggest thing to discuss with providers is always remember we're not treating hypertension, right? So, you know, I hear over and over again sometimes that, you know, you recommend GDMT and, you know, they're like, oh, the patient's not hypertensive, you know, like, you know, whatever. And just always going back to, even if they're normal tensive, even if they have soft blood pressures, but they're asymptomatic, we're going to jack up these drugs as much as we can. So just always keeping that in mind. All right. And then one, one last time, what's the, what's the website uh, for those who listened and are like, wow, Kate does it actually a really good job of explaining this complex disease state in simple terms. Remind us what, what that website is where they can go to learn a whole lot more. Yeah, thanks. So it's www.cards.rxexplained.com. The link is also on my Twitter. So, you know, if you're interested in learning more or breaking these concepts down, you know, I encourage you to check it out. I mean, it's, it's ACS, anticoagulation, um, probably goes into even more detail on heart failure that we didn't have time to talk about, arrhythmias, pressors, VTEs, all the things. Um, and if you're looking for her, remember, it's at Kate underscore Centra. Uh, so Kate, thank you so much. Uh, took a lot of your time with these two episodes, but um, what a, an unbelievable um, sharing of knowledge for myself and the listeners. So I greatly appreciate you. Yeah, thanks for listening to me ramble. I had fun. At Kate underscore Centra, if you want to reach out to her, because um, Kate did such a great job. Um, this is a master class two episode uh, discussion on some of the nuances of heart failure, um, but whether it's different classes of drugs, whether it's acute versus chronic, um, hef, pef, hef, ref, everything in between. Um, Kate, thank you so much. And remember, everyone, cards.rxexplained.com.
Com. Uh, so reach out to me if you have uh, thoughts, questions, comments, concerns at pharmacy to dose, T O to dose, uh, or via email pharmacy to dose at gmo.com. Um, reference list will be posted in the episode description as well as the website. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast. <laughs>